Welcome to Humanizing Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Marketing Cloudcast, a podcast by Salesforce created to bring together marketers and people who want to learn more about how to be better in their companies and careers. I'm Tina Razul coming to you from Sydney, Australia, here with my wonderful friend and co-host, Marty Kine. Hello, everybody, and hello, Tina. It's amazing to think we are now on our fifth episode in this Humanizing Marketing series. And today's topic is really relevant to what I've been seeing here in my home base in, in the US on the East Coast and also in the rest of the world, as I look beyond our borders, um, we're talking about ethics, and the ethics of using data and AI. It's a very relevant follow-up to what we talked about last week, Tina, which was how marketers use AI and machine learning in their work. Yeah. We have a very special guest on today's show, Sheila Warren. She's the deputy head of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution at the World Economic Forum. So a very important job. Sheila works with companies and governments to pilot new technologies that intersect with AI, crypto, smart devices, and ensures there is the right level of ethical governance in place. She's also on the advisory board for Data Ethics for All, an organization focused on the ethical use of data and inclusive artificial intelligence, and is also a board member for the World Development Report, which is published by the World Bank, focusing on how data can benefit impoverished populations. Could Sheila be any more impressive? I don't think so. (laughs) Anyway, it's a really good topic as we focus on humanizing marketing. That's the theme of the series. And empathy and ethics are really an important part of being human, provided, of course, you're the right kind of human. (laughs) It will also be interesting to hear from Sheila what the fourth industrial revolution is. I mean, what is going on there? And is there a fifth revolution around the corner? I assume. Can't wait to find out. Yeah, me too. It should be very interesting. And we're really looking forward to speaking with Sheila. But before we invite her to the show, let's hear from Nick Gurner, CEO of our incredible partner for this series, WordPress VIP. Simplicity is a critical capability because it opens up, it democratizes who has access to the technology, who has access to the tools. And in marketing now, the more we're able to sort of distribute who has customer touch points, Honestly, the richer the customer experience gets through a lot of this. So we think this like simplicity is really critical capability that might be often overlooked. Thanks, Nick. And WordPress VIP. Now let's welcome Sheila to the show. Sheila, you have a very impressive background, as we said. You're the head of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. What exactly does that mean? And what does working at the World Economic Forum feel like? Yeah, I have quite a a mysterious title (laughs) indeed. Indeed. What is the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution? What is the 4IR to begin with? Uh, so maybe I'll just start by kind of giving you an overview of, of me and who I am and how I got to be at this at this magical place. I am a lawyer by training. So I spent some time on Wall Street, moved out here to Silicon Valley. I'm in San Francisco at the moment, but I moved out to Silicon Valley 
uh, to focus on philanthropy law and thinking a lot about uh, charitable giving and the law there. And I wound up, unsurprisingly, working with a bunch of people who made a lot of money in technology. And so I got pretty well versed in how technologists think because the way they think about giving away their money is very similar to how they think about building product. And that got very interesting. Uh, from there, I built a SaaS product called NGO Source. And that was focused on international giving as well. From there, I became general counsel of a nonprofit called TechSoup. And that's where I got really into blockchain. So I started thinking a lot about GDPR, but how a nonprofit like TechSoup was going to actually deal with GDPR. And we weren't heavily resourced. We weren't sure what we were going to be doing. Uh, and blockchain seemed like a potential solution to that. And then the forum in parallel during my journey, uh, its 50-year history, was uh, really exploring uh, the, the intersections of technologies like AI, machine learning, uh, data policy and data science and analytics, uh, IoT and smart devices, smart homes, blockchain and crypto. And Klaus Schwab, the founder of the forum, realized that there was this revolution in the making, and he called it the fourth industrial revolution. He wrote a book about this in about 2016, and the forum opened up an office in San Francisco in the Presidio to focus on these technologies. And so what we think a lot about how these technologies are shaping society and what's the governance that needs to always be accompanying policy. So unlike many in the spaces that we work in, we don't build product, we don't test or pilot, we don't code out of our office. We really build out and pilot policy interventions that can help accelerate the benefits and mitigate the risks of these new technologies. You're right, Sheila. I think that's so important. When we use technology, we by default think of the benefit of its speed, its capabilities, and often we can miss a step in how the impact of using the combination of data, technology, and AI is used ethically. What should we be more mindful of when intersecting the use of data, technology, and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I think the fundamental thing to understand is that you know there really isn't AI without data. You know, so your your first point of investigation needs to really be uh, the data that you're using. What data are you gathering? What are you using it for? How are you using it? There may or may not be machine learning you know, or an AI that's developed uh, based on that data. But every company in the world, every government, every you know, every entity is using data in some form, whether they're collecting it, buying it, sharing it, analyzing it, and using the analytics around it. There's some engagement you're doing with data. And a lot of the laws that we are familiar with, many of us GDPR, CCPA, you know, even CAMSPAM, like a lot of these laws are focused around what you can and can't do with data. Whose data can you collect? What do you have to tell them when you get it? You know, And that's one orientation. It's very rooted in privacy. But there's a lot more going on with data than privacy. Privacy is one layer, and there are different notions culturally around the world around what should be private, what does privacy mean, who should have access, what should they use it for, you know, what kind of notice do I have to have? All these things are complicated, and there, there's a, you can't separate the cultural component out of this. But when you imagine that all of that data is what is going into the creation, machine learning is, is building on that, and then you're creating an algorithm... Well, there are some things that can flow from that, and we've certainly learned that lesson the hard way over the last you know, decade or so. You make a, a good point. So they, they have an AI model, an algorithm, which is amoral, essentially. 
but it's based on data that has been fed to it. And that data could be text, it could be images, it could be unstructured, it could be something that no one's vetted previously. And that data itself could have, and often will have some kind of unconscious or conscious bias within it. How can marketers think about bearing that tension in mind? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge, right? Because you have to be tightly connected to your your data analytics, your data scientists, you know, whoever it is. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's not necessarily someone who's using insight from data that has the ability to affect, you know, what data is being used, right? But it's important to kind of think about that. And so what we like to really focus on is like looking at your company level, what are the systems and processes you have in place to make sure that you're thinking about these considerations? And do you have like an internal almost checks and balances, you know, QA process that's parallel, that's thinking about your collection of data? Are you engaging in appropriate data minimization practices, meaning don't collect what you're not using? don't collect it, you know, period is kind of a best practice. Do you have almost this kind of accountability mechanism built in so you catch things before there are problems? Some companies that are very, very data heavy or have like a lot of public scrutiny will use a third party auditor even, but hire someone to come in and kind of audit what they're doing with their data. There's a lot of considerations around, you know, how do you create almost like a, a catch-all? Do you want to spot problems before they occur? You know, there's a lot of examples of this going wrong, like in particularly marketing campaigns, right? Like well-intentioned gathering data, learning things about people that maybe they don't really want you to know, and then marketing those characteristics, which cause problems. For a marketer, where do those processes sit? Is that in the marketing department or is it best practice to put it somewhere else as like oversight? Yeah, you know, it varies. And a lot of this does need to start in your your data division. And that just varies. You might have a chief data officer, it might be a chief digital officer, innovation officer. There's a lot of these different places that it sits. There's usually within large companies, some sort of data science, you know, kind of division. And so I think about it, depending on what company, what your company is like, what your structure is like, these really are executive level C-suite decisions. They have to go all the way up to the top to decide what are we doing with our data. It's not a, a grassroots decision in some ways, right? You can feed up the insight and say, these are problems we're anticipating, whatever it might be, but it has to be part of your overall business strategy. And so a lot of times I actually think that the overall marketing goals are going to drive, you know, what you collect and, and what you ask. And so without that information, you're not creating a data strategy that's going to be aligned with what your vision and your needs really are. So it needs to be a joint effort. Now, where it sits, that varies widely. So just it really depends on the structure of your company. But I would say it needs to be something that there's a, is input into from across the house. And it's a very senior level decision with buy-in all the way to the top. So you understand that you're baking in these requirements or processes, whatever they might wind up looking like, and everyone feels accountable to them across the entire house. And you raise a good point. As marketers, people always look at what is the output, meaning who am I targeting? Am I reaching my ROI goals? Am I creating a personalized message that's going to hit the buyers to take action? And they forget about the checks and balances that should happen before that. How can we create more urgency for our listeners to build that culture and change that mindset? Because like you said, it will vary. How can organizations start to create that culture to hold themselves accountable? Well, I hate to kind of go to the parade of horribles, you know, but I think there are a lot of examples and there's unfortunately, there's more every day of what it looks like when this goes bad. And so one example here was that machine learning models, when they were in the early days, when they were created, when they would translate language tasks, they would actually associate female names like mine or yours, Tina, right, with things like wedding, mother, baby, and male names would pick up words like 
work, salary, success, ambition. It was like really, really gender coded, gender biased. And the model wasn't making that up. It was just trained on text that had those gender tropes in it. And so someone just thought they were putting in like, I don't know, a novel or whatever it was. But what came out of that was this association of women with the home and men with the workplace. It was very striking. Is there a way that we can hold people who are in those positions accountable to that? I almost feel like there should be a level of ethics training before you give someone that power to create that code. You know, it isn't even so much that the code was flawed, right? Because it's that the data that trained the model was flawed. So generally, there's established there's three categories of bias in AI. And so one is what I call, it's called negative legacy. It's basically the training data. It's what's used to train. This is kind of the garbage in, garbage out concept, right? You put in data that's got bias in it. Well, surprise, you get bias you know, coming out of it. The problem here, one of the biggest problems is your system might have years of bias baked into it. So banks got into this trouble because they had there's histories of redlining. So they weren't giving people of color bank loans in certain communities. They just weren't getting them. So their customer data or their loan data was white men, primarily. So when you train your AI model on that, you're like, oh, we're just putting in our loan data, just throwing it in there, right? And so we're getting analytics on our loans and who's more likely to pay or whatever it is. But the model, the data itself is so biased and you don't even realize that because it's legacy data. It's from before you were even there. You don't even know, right? And then your model is just baking all of that in. So it's not always easy to spot. It's not that the code or the model is wrong. It's that it's being trained on a super biased premise. It has a faulty premise, and then you have to kind of notice that. So there are people who are trained in doing this. This is an emerging field is how you spot biased data, what you do about it. And there are ways to correct this, to be clear. It's not that you have to go invent data. There are ways to kind of get in there and say, well, we need to kind of collect a different set or add in other proxy variables or whatever it is. There's ways of mitigating it, but you can't solve what you don't see. Forget it. So another kind of AI bias is called algorithmic prejudice. And these names vary slightly, but I'll give you the concepts. And so this is the idea that you may think your model is not biased. You're like, we're not looking at, at race. We don't even, that's not even a, a category. It's not a variable, whatever. But you are looking at zip code. So my, where I live, zip code, very heavily Latinx community. Two, you know, zip codes over, super Asian. So it really varies. And so if you're using zip code, well, surprise, that's highly correlated with race. So you're getting race, even though your model is technically, quote unquote, blind to demographic data. Okay. So this, again, it's easier to spot this in some cases. It's a little more known. And what happens here is ordinarily, it's, you see the model spitting out kind of these biased outputs and you realize, oh, shoot, I was using, by mistake, I was using a proxy variable. I got to think of something else. I got to create something that's less correlated with the demographic characteristics I'm trying to guard against and find some other way to kind of get data into the system and train the model, right? But again, you don't spot it, you can't solve it. And then the third kind of bias we see a lot is underestimation. And this is like, there's just not enough data in the model for it to be confident about, you know, some segments. So the classic example here is you've got a super male workforce and you're like, I want to, I want to have my, an AI model that goes through and like scans resumes and finds likely candidates. Well, that's probably going to be more confident about male candidates because there's just a lot more male employees, right? That's learning about. Is it fair to say any situation where you're looking at data that involves human beings on some level is probably likely to have some kind of bias? Or maybe put another way, you should always be looking for the potential for bias in that data? I think yes. And the bias is going to vary depending where you are. 
So there's a certain kind of, you know, Western tech company bias that's very different. If you're in India, it's different bias. If you're in Seoul, so there's cultural bias that is baked into certainly like most legacy data sets. That's kind of known. Now, the good news is it's kind of known. And there are plenty of models of how you mitigate it, right? Because there's been enough of this done over time that you kind there's like a whole library of what are proxy, you know, variables that you can kind of use and how do you guard against even certain data sets that people that are publicly available actually have in them. Like like here's how you actually mitigate some of the bias in this particular data set, right? So you don't have to reinvent the wheel all that often. You have to be aware of this as a default position, really go in and do the investigation on the data and understand, you know, like what are we putting into this system uh, and what is it going to give us? And can we rely on the AI and the data that went into it to give us accurate outputs for, for again, always contextualizing what are our goals. That's the place to start. Like, what are you trying to get done? And you start there and you figure out what you need to do to get to where you need to be. Is there any kind of data that isn't biased, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm going to be a bit of a cynic here. And and I think, I think, you know, we all bring our biases to the table, you know, so I have a, I'm an American and I try very hard to guard against having an overly American point of view on things. I would argue it's almost impossible to do that. Because I don't even understand the ways in which my mindset is bringing that Americanness and that experience of the world that I've had for you know my entire life to the table, and that the default assumptions that I make are not accurate when it comes to thinking globally. They might be very accurate for an American context or a San context or a woman of color context in America or a mom or you know whatever it is, right? But I certainly am really frankly intellectually incapable of, of putting myself into into a worldview that is truly unbiased. So I think this is something that this is part of the reason that we talk a lot about, you know, who is at the table, like who is actually providing, you know, use cases, who is actually providing um, information and data, you know. So my point being, you know, the more types of people you have in an ecosystem weighing into it on a team, whatever it might be, the more likely you are to spot bias before it's, you know, out there in the world and you're getting in trouble. <laughs> so it's, it's a smart thing to think about for a variety of reasons. How can markers ensure that the data that they're actually looking at is not too biased? Like, what's that balance? What's that good mix of making sure that their leadership team has the right amount of checks and balances in place, but the data that they're actually looking at is a diverse data? Yeah, you know, and I think, I think we have to also contextualize here, right? So a lot of marketers are, there, there's two ways that you're doing, that you're conducting marketing, right? So one is you're looking at established customers. Well, your established customers are giving you data. They are your customers. That data is not inaccurate. And your your customer set might be a very narrow customer set, but that's actually okay because you're targeting that customer set. So the fact that your customer data shouldn't be used for another company is actually kind of irrelevant, right? Because that's not your intention. You're like, this is who we market to. This is who we who we see. This is who we work with. They give us information. What we have on them is what they give us. So the bias is a little bit less of a concern in that context. Now, the other thing, of course, marketers do is they look for new audiences. And that's where you have to be a little careful about the bias because you don't want to extrapolate from your existing customer base and say, well, everyone is like that. Therefore, I'm going to go out and not that anybody who's decent at marketing would ever do this, but you know, take this set and say, this is monolithic. Everyone is like our existing customers. Therefore, we're going to market the exact same way. This is what targeted marketing is about, right? But you have to be careful when you're going out because oftentimes what you're doing is you're pulling data sets from other places. So it's not your collected data. And there are other issues we we talk about there when you collect data from your customers. That's a whole different set of ethical questions. (laughs) But the data, the bias is not so much of a concern. there. It's when you go out trying to expand market and you're like, we're going to buy a data set from wherever. 
do you really know what's in that data set? And is it actually going to meet your needs? And is it actually really biased? Like you just, you just have to ask those questions, right? So part of it's just asking those questions, focusing on what are your goals? Is this data going to help create insights that are going to get you where you want to be and get you to the targets and the audiences that you're looking to get to? If yes, great. If not, why not? And then mitigate that by figuring out what else do you need to put in there to make it actually work for you. We had a whole episode on customer data platform, uh, which is a form of technology, very, very hot topic. And one that myself and another guy actually wrote a book on called Customer Data Platforms. <laughs> and uh, the point there is that, you know, marketers now, they feel compelled, we'll say, to collect more first-party data. There's uh, a lot of reasons for that, structural reasons. And, but they're like, I need more first-party data, but I need to gather it with consent. So I need to have a relationship with my consumers where I kind of explain what the value is and they give me data. And there's a lot of discussions like that going on. How do I explain the value or demonstrate it or just get consent so I can comply with rules. So how do you think about collecting data from customers and that exchange of value? And what is the nature of that relationship? Well, I think it's fundamentally changing because I yeah. do think we've operated primarily in a notice and consent you know, context. And I think we actually published a paper last spring that kind of just... I mean, we didn't call it this, although I argued maybe we should, you know, just basically like consent is broken because it's just the, the model doesn't work. Like I'm not going in and doing all my settings every single time on all my devices. A million, I'm just like, I don't even want to, you know, there are times that even I, and I definitely know better. I just go in there and I'm like, what do I have to do to just move on to what I need to do? You know, it's just, it's just not reasonable for any individual to bear the burden of all of that consent that's like flying in their face all the time. It's just not reasonable. So our consent model is fundamentally broken. Now, the good news is, there are a couple of different models around holding data that are a little bit more manageable. So there's things like data trusts. You know, this is a, a trust model concept. You have almost a fiduciary that holds your data and you can apply variable permissioning to that data. So the trust holds your data. Access is varied. Uh, the blockchain and smart contracts can actually help with this. So we're entering a technical world where four AI technologies working in combination, right, are really going to enable, again, what I call variable permissioning. So I might say that my genomic data, which is like the most personal data I can personally think of, right? It's just, it's, it's all kinds of things you could do with that data if you had it on me. I might say anonymize it, aggregate it, give it to the city of San Francisco Department of Public Health because I want them to be able to run a longitudinal study on vaccines and what happens with that over the course of time, right? Like for some public health purpose, I'm like, take it, do whatever you want with it, just have at it, just keep me, I, my identity out of it, but do whatever you want. That exact same data, I might be very reluctant to give it to a, you know, a perfume company to make a fragrance that is going to be exactly perfect for my body chemistry or whatever, right? It's the same data, but I'm like, this purpose is great, that purpose, absolutely not. So we need to shift, I think, away from this concept of siloed, controlled, you know, notice and consent kind of data. It's not the quality of the data itself that, is, that needs to be managed. It's the use of the data that needs to be managed. It's by whom and what for that I actually care about. I think most people who are digital native and certainly who are going to be the next generation crypto native do not have the same expectation, realistically, of privacy as a lot of previous generations do. Now, we could argue all day if that's good or bad. You know, I'm going to just punt on that question. The reality is it's a reality, right? It's just what it is. Now, that being said, they want to have more agency and empowerment over who they share things with and what is done with it after it's shared. 
That doesn't mean that they, they don't think about, you know, privacy in the same way, right? They're, they're happy to have stuff out there. It's just the reason behind it and the context really, really, really matters. And that's becoming increasingly true. And it's certainly true in, in other parts of the world as well. So we have to similarly shift our models around data, how we're holding it, how we're using it, how we're sharing it, how we're transferring it, how we're even collecting it into a model that recognizes that reality and is more fluid and flexible in terms of what we're allowing for subsequent uses on data. And, and I think that we're slowly getting there simply because the volume of consent notifications is just so overwhelming that people have no patience for it anymore. Does it have to be regulated or, uh, I mean, there's a, a debate. I mean, does it have to come from the top or could it be marketers themselves proactively coming up with, a I don't know, an industry body or something like that or just best practice? You know, I tend to be more optimistic and hopeful about the possibilities of self-regulation when it's done collectively. Individual self-regulation, I think, largely just doesn't work, right? Because the incentives are just not really aligned and then everyone's doing it differently. There's too much room for interpretation. But I do think when there's sort of collective accountability, you know, and it's not even that you're holding your counterpart accountable, like another company or whatever. It's that you're all agreeing kind of together as an industry, whether it's marketing industry or whatever it might be, about the best practices and standards. I feel like that's actually very powerful. You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism about it because it's like, well, collectively, aren't isn't even more powerful than individually, right? But I actually think that there's enough differences across business models, particularly if you cross sector, if you kind of leave, you don't look just at big tech, you look at kind of like tech and you look at financial services and you look at automotive or, you know, whatever it is, right? There's all kinds of places where these, these issues are relevant. If you look across a broader sector, I do feel like you're going to get to a place where certain best practices logically emerge. And then perhaps what happens then is you codify those things, right? Maybe those get regulated upon, or they get pulled into regulation with some, you know, tweaks and changes here and there. But I, I don't know, I tend to be more optimistic about the power of collective action. And perhaps that's just because, you know, I work at the forum as part of what we engage in all the time is thinking about collective action across, across sectoral and geographic boundaries. My friend Tricia Wong talks about this a lot, is this concept of digital personhood. So who I was as a person was a very, you know, IRL experience, right? Like I was out in the world, I was doing stuff, whatever. Who my children are, there is an online component to their identity that isn't distinct from who they are. Right. Like there's a almost a feedback loop there. And, you know, that is terrifying as a parent, uh, but it also can be very powerful because there are ways, there are modes of expression, you know, that my that my kids can engage in online that are that are easier for them to navigate or that are that are unique that they can't really you know get in the world. So I think like, again, we're seeing it really powerfully already. You know, just the fact that, you know, my my kids will they'll never know a world where there wasn't a smartphone. They have no concept of what that was like. No idea. And it isn't, it's, it's even more than like the landline or whatever. It's like the idea that you can have information at your fingertips. You can look something up because your device is with you and you can just find out what it is you need to know, assuming you have the critical thinking skills to assess what's nonsense and what's actually real, right? You can get facts or, you know, quote facts very, very quickly. So we're already outsourcing our calendars, our memory, our, you know, so many things to our devices. And I'm sure we've all experienced that troubling but real moment when you can't find your device. You're like, oh my God, I can't find my phone. Now what do I do? What, what, what do I have to do next? What's next on my I have no idea. You know, that connection is going to become tighter and tighter as, as the years go on. It is fascinating, yeah. Sheila. So thank you for your sharing your wisdom with us. We are still in 2021 and there is still a lot of unknown. There's a lot of change and there's a lot of pivoting. But at the heart of everything that we do, people want to be better and they want to do good for their customers and their business. So 
how, what's a piece of advice that you would share with them knowing that there may be biased data segments and sources that are fueled into their systems. There may need to be some mind shifts and checks and balances in place to make sure that they are prepared for this year and beyond. So what is a piece of advice you would share with them? Yeah, you know, I don't want to make this sound trite, but I really think it's about having empathy for your customers. So some of the places that I think marketing campaigns got into trouble is there was just a failure of empathy, I feel like. But I kind of frame this strategically around a couple of different principles. And one is just, are you being fair? Are you being transparent about what you're collecting, what you're doing with it in a way that you yourself would feel comfortable with? And then you yourself needs to be a pretty broad set of whoever your intended and expected audience is. Is there accountability in the system? Are you giving people recourse that if something happens that they don't feel comfortable with, they have a place to go? Then I think there's this question of, you know, are you really focusing on making your system trustworthy? Like, is that a, a core component of what you're building? And what does that mean to you and your audience? And having like articulated principles around what does it mean for our campaign or our whatever to be trustworthy? And like knowing what that means it's context dependent. But I think it's really just about putting the thought behind all of this and making sure that you are uh, assessing it regularly, that you're checking in with it, that you're you know, tweaking things when they have to be tweaked, but you're prioritizing it fundamentally. No, that's really good advice. And I think it's something that we all need to be reminded about in everything that we do, not just in work. So now we're going to go into a quick rapid fire question. So the first one is, in your experience over the last year, what are your silver linings? Uh, well, time with my family, of course. And, you know, I think I've actually embraced my inner introvert, which I didn't know I had. But I've gotten a lot more comfortable. I think I haven't had a social life like no one's really had a social life. And I think I've gotten kind of comfortable with my own company and that of a very, very small group of people. And I, I find that in some ways healthier. And I've, I've, I'm just thinking about it. I enjoy I will second that. I feel I'm more grounded in solitude. Yeah. Are there uh, any routines that you've adopted or that you always did every day? You know, the most relaxing time for me, which is going to sound crazy, is uh, is putting my toddler to bed. I just love it. Like we just have this beautiful moment at the it kind of the it transitions my day because I normally end my work day about half an hour before her bedtime. So we get that time to kind of play, have dinner, and then I take her up and we do our book reading and our singing and our whatever it is. And I just feel totally grounded for well, a for the challenge is bedtime with my slightly older children. So <laughs> number one, but it just is this really lovely transition that I like. Uh, I will really miss when I start traveling again. I will I will truly miss that. That's awesome. Um, and last rapid fire question, what advice would you give your younger self? So I would say, you know, keep following your curiosity. I just kept finding things that I was interested in. And then somehow I managed to turn them into professional, you know, managed to get people to pay me to think about them. So, you know, I think it would just be trust your curiosity, like trust that instinct. There's something there that is worthy of more exploration and don't be nervous about being a novice at something. Don't be afraid to be brand new because there's so many things that are brand new that are so worth understanding. And that's perfect advice for a time like now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sheila. This is a really great conversation. We really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Sheila, for joining us on the show. We learned so much about the ethical governance on using data and AI. Tina, it's really fascinating to think about humanizing marketing in a different way. And we encourage all of you out there to have empathy 
and ensure there are the right level of checks and balances in place to create meaningful marketing. Absolutely, Marty. Thanks, as always, to our friends at WordPress VIP for partnering with us on this series. And thank you to our editing partners at Trendy Minds and our friends, Connor and Sachin, who really are working tirelessly behind the scenes to bring this all to life. Everyone, see you next week in our final episode of this Humanizing Marketing series as we talk about the future of marketing with our very own Salesforce futurists. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Can't wait. Bye. Bye. Guys.